0: Welcome. Good morning to everyone, and thank you to our praise team for leading us in powerful worship this morning. So good to seeing the truths of the Scriptures allowed together as a church family. Well, this morning uh, we are going to launch into our study of the Gospel of John. So if you'd like to turn there, that's where we will be today, the Gospel of John. I think we've all been looking forward to this. I know that, that I've been looking forward to it, and in anticipation to be able to break this down. And I got a feeling it's going to take us a while to get through this gospel. But as we begin, as we begin to look at this gospel, the gospel of John, it's it's my hope and prayer that it will not just give us a greater understanding of Jesus and his life, although that will happen, but that it will give us a greater love for him as our Savior and Lord. As Christians, we should love to learn about Jesus because he has done so much for us in providing salvation for us from the due penalty of our sin. Sinners saved by the grace of God, through faith in him. And as we just sang, we will have eternal life. Hope has a name, doesn't it? And his name is is Jesus. Well, I may have told you this, but I I have an older pair of shoes that Kathy keeps saying to me, you ought to throw those things away. And I said, nope, those shoes walked where Jesus walked. I'm going to keep them forever. Well, just a side note with that, and we'll plan to get more information out on this later, but we're looking at a possible trip to Israel Uh, next November, so November 2023, for those of you who might be interested in walking where Jesus walked, and you'll see exactly why I want to keep those ratty shoes. That's, in a weird way, a connection that I have with Jesus when he was on the earth. I actually walked where Jesus walked. I stood on the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended up into heaven and where he will descend at his second coming, And so we need to buckle in. We're we're going to be on a long and fruitful ride together as we mine the truths contained in this gospel account of the life of Jesus. Well, the Gospel of John, as you may well know, is one of four gospels given to us in the Scriptures along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they all essentially cover the same accounts in the life of Jesus, albeit from their own unique perspective. But according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the Gospel of John has 93% original material in comparison to the other synoptic Gospels. And so, in many ways, the Gospel of John that we will be looking at over the course of the next year or so stands separate from any other book in the Bible, As the title says, the the Gospel of John was written by John, the son of Zebedee. Five times in this Gospel, John refers to Jesus as the one whom he loves. You see, Jesus had a special love for John, who who wrote this Gospel sometime uh, after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and sometime before the end of his life in near around A.D. 100. This John who authored this gospel is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. He was one of 12 apostles and the only apostle who was not martyred for his faith as he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos towards the end of his life. And that is where he wrote the book of Revelation from. Well perhaps you've been watching the progress of the construction down on 422 across from Rudders there's there's no building yet just a good solid foundation on which to build and that's exactly what we hope to do today to build a foundation for our study of John's gospel and we're going to do so by looking at four aspects of this gospel its purpose its content its nature and its message and so as we think about the purpose for his writing he actually tells us why he wrote this gospel account of the life of jesus just a few months ago our church had a booth at the old anvil day celebration down on the square and we distributed information about our church and we also passed out a special gospel track that asks the question who do you think that i am who do you think that I am? And by, by the way, I mean, is there any more profound of a question as it relates to Jesus? This may be the most important question that anyone can be confronted with as it relates to Jesus Christ, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? I have been in numerous conversations with skeptics over the years, and we have talked about all things apologetics. We have talked about all things Uh, with the Bible and we've gotten into long drawn out discussions but at the end of the day it's the answer to that question that makes all the difference in the world who do you say that Jesus is and that's the very question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15 and you remember that Peter immediately speaks up and he says you are the Christ the son of the living God you see, Jesus didn't come to the earth to simply be remembered as a moral man or a skilled teacher or a compassionate friend. He came to reveal God to man. And so turn back to chapter 20, and I'm going to show you just exactly why John says that he wrote this letter, this gospel, back to the, prior to the early church. Perhaps John, who was there when Jesus asked that question, was thinking about Peter's answer when he wrote these words in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which tells us exactly why he wrote this gospel. John said there in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, eternal life in his name. And so not everything that Jesus did while he was on the earth, and many believe that Jesus was on the earth for some 33 years, 30 years prior to his death ministry, the last three years of his life, his active ministry. But isn't that instructive for us? Because the purpose of John's gospel, again, is not to try and persuade his readers that Jesus was a moral man or a great and skilled teacher or even a prophet of God. John's purpose in writing this gospel was to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah who was prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. In this gospel, John sets out to prove that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And those who believe in him will have life in his name. John wants all who read his gospel to know that Jesus is the revelation of God to man. And here's how he begins to lay all this out. So if you go back to the first chapter of John, John chapter 1 and verse 1, John says these words. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you drop down to chapter 1 and verse 14, we find that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then drop down to verse 18. Verse 18. And he adds this No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, the Word, has explained him. And then later in chapter 14, in verse 9, verse 9 in an exchange with Philip, Jesus says these words He says, Have I been so long with you, and, and you have yet to come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me <laughs> has seen the Father. And so we're going to look at these statements about Jesus in much more detail in future messages, but but that's John's purpose in writing this gospel. John wants his readers to know who Jesus is and to believe in him as he is. So as we consider the content of this gospel, we're going to find a lot of symbolic language, which is really intended to help us to grasp the deeper meaning of what John's communicating here about Jesus. Jesus. So scattered throughout the Gospel of John, he highlights seven signs or seven miracles that show the deity of Jesus prior to his resurrection. I want to give those to you, and we'll look at them in more detail as we move along through the Gospel, seven signs or seven miracles that show the deity of Jesus. First, we find Jesus' very first recorded miracle in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus changes water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Interesting. Second, in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, we find Jesus healing the nobleman's son. And then third, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, John records the story of Jesus healing the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And by the way, if you go on the Israel trip, we'll go to the pool of Bethesda. Fourth, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, John describes feeding the 5,000. And then fifth, in chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, John highlights Jesus miraculously walking on the water. This is the Sea of Galilee. And uh, again, if you were to go on the trip with us in November of next year, you will take a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, by the way, is not what we think of in our mind as this big, large, grand sea. In fact, fact, over there, they call it Lake Tiberias. Uh, They call it Lake Gennesaret. Uh, You can see from one side to the other, but that is the location where Jesus walked on the water. Amazing. And then sixth in chapter nine, verses one through 12, we read of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. And then seventh, in chapter eleven, verses one through forty-six, we're going to see John. Uh, ra- uh, John records Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so, in at least three of these miracles or signs of Jesus' deity, we don't have to guess as their to their significance because Jesus tells them. After he feeds the five thousand, Jesus says in chapter 6 and verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. In chapter 8 and verse 12, as Jesus is about to open the eyes of the blind man, he says in chapter 8 and verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in chapter 11, in verse 25, right before Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he tells Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. If you noticed, each of those statements, those three statements by Jesus began with the words, I am, right? And so as we move throughout our study of the gospel, we're going to find seven I am statements by Jesus. The other four I am declarations by Jesus include saying, him saying in chapter 10 and verse 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And then in chapter 10, verses 11, and repeated in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. And in perhaps the most notable of all of Jesus' I am statements, he says in chapter 14 and verse 6 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We need to be crystal clear with people as we talk to them about Jesus that he is the only way of salvation. In this inclusive world that we live in, we have an exclusive message for all of these people who will glob on to just about anything and place their belief in that We have an exclusive message that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Well, what if they're very sincere about what they believe? I get it. I've been around people who are sincere about their belief, but they are sincerely wrong as it relates to this, because Jesus is the only way the truth, the life. No one's going to come to the Father by being good. Nobody's going to come to the Father by being religious, or nice, or kind, or even loving. There's only one way of salvation, and it's by believing in Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, whom God sent to this earth to die in the place of sinners, and that by believing in Christ, we might have His imputed righteousness, that we then can present to God Almighty. Only Jesus can satisfy the wrath of God, propitiate His anger against sin, and give us eternal life. I love John 14 and verse 6. It's probably going to be a year and a half before we get there. But I love that passage of Scripture. I am the way, Amen. the truth, and the life. No one, not a single person will come to the Father, but through me. Well, his final I am statement is found in chapter 15 in verse 1 and repeated again in verse 5, where he says, I am the true vine. So we'll look at all these I am statements as we move through this gospel. But in each of these I am statements, it's important that we consider the symbolism as to what Jesus is saying about himself and how Uh, What he says about himself relates to us. And again, a good Bible student who reads uh, through the scriptures um, will see repeated words and repeated phrases. And John loves to repeat words. He loves to repeat phrases for emphasis. And so over and over in the gospel, we're going to find John using the words like life and light. And we'll find him using the word "world" all throughout this book. I think I counted some 78 times that he uses the word "world. Moving on to its nature. And so the main genre of this book, or the, the nature of this book, is gospel. Gospel. It, 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 each of the four gospels provide for its three main ingredients: what Jesus did, what Jesus said. And the people's response to Jesus. And and I, I think this is safe to say that if there were one book of the Bible that we could pass along to someone to introduce them to Jesus, it would be the Gospel of John. Its message is clear. And it's powerful. And it's precise. It cuts to the heart. John is crystal clear as to who Jesus is and why sinful men like us are to turn to him in repentance and faith. Which brings us then to its message. As we begin to consider its message, I want to take a look with you at how John begins his gospel. So go back to the first chapter and verse 1, and notice how he begins. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is a slam dunk verse about the deity of Christ. And that's why the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and other groups have to try to reformulate verse 1 of John chapter 1. This is a slam dunk. Jesus is God. Notice here in verse 1 that John uses a unique word to identify Jesus. He uses the Greek word logos, which is translated here as word he says, in the beginning was the word. Lagos here refers to the expression or the communication of God. So both the Jews and the Greeks would have understood that John was saying that Jesus is the visible, tangible expression of God. And then he reiterates this truth in verse 14 of chapter 1, verse 17 of chapter 1, verse 18 of chapter 1, and chapter 14 of verse 1. So I want to look a little bit more closely at verse 1 with you today. And here we're going to find two very important foundational truths about Jesus, the Lagos. First, we find here that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal, which means that he's always existed. He has no beginning and he has no end. Verse 1 says again, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos, the visible, tangible expression of God. And so the first question that a careful Bible student would most likely ask is, what does John mean when he refers here to the beginning? Right? Legit question. We want to dig in a little deeper. We need to know what he's talking about here. What is he referring to? Is Which beginning, essentially, is he referring to here well at first glance in a quick read most of us would refer back to our only reference point and we would conclude that john must be referring to the same beginning that was mentioned in genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth But upon closer investigation, John is actually communicating something here that's much more comprehensive and profound than just that Jesus was around when the universe was created. The real key to our understanding of what he's talking about here is found in the form of the word was, which in the Greek language in which John was writing is the Greek word ain, spelled e-n. It's a timeless word in the sense that it simply points to the existence before the present time without any reference to a point of origin. In other words, what's being communicated here is one can push back the beginning as far as you can imagine, and according to John, the Word still is. He's saying that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is timeless. The the Word is not a, a creation that came into existence at the beginning. The word precedes the beginning. So, in addition to various pre-incarnate appearances by Jesus that we have in the Old Testament, other passages of Scripture that speak to his eternity are passages like in John eight fifty eight. Jesus himself said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am." over 2,000 years separated the physical births of Abraham and Jesus. And I've given you this timeline over the years, and uh, I think it's, it's good for us to remember big picture things so that we have a reference point. I'm a young earth creationist, and so I don't believe that the earth's been around for millions and millions of years. I don't think it's been around for hundreds of thousands of years. I think it's been around for maybe six or 7,000 years. So here's a way to remember a little bit of a timeline as to the age of the earth. So from Adam to Abraham was about 2,000 years, okay? From Abraham to Jesus was about 2,000 years. And then from Jesus to now is about 2,000 years. So the earth is probably somewhere around, roughly speaking, 6,000 years years old and i believe literally believe in the old testament in the genesis account i literally believe that jesus or that god jesus as well was the creator but god created within time frames that we understand and we know Um, in the morning and the evening was the first day 24-hour periods. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. It means a 24-hour period of time. And so literally, God created things with age. So when He created Adam and Eve, for instance, He created them with age. They were older. When He created trees, and when He created fish, and when He created uh, all kinds of animals and plants and all these kinds of things, He created them with age. Are, are, Are we to... Are we to assume that God is not powerful enough to create things with age? Do we really need millions and millions of years for things to play out in an evolutionary way? Or do we believe what God said? That in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to explain all of the ways that he did that. And in what order he did that. Part of our hermeneutic, part of our way to approach scripture is we do so in a normal literal fashion we go to the the book of genesis we have no reason to believe that that is hyperbole that he's using figures of speech there that he's somehow not telling us exactly what happened back during that time i think it's fascinating that jesus says before abraham was i am I am Micah the prophet foretold of the eternal king Jesus who will one day reign during a literal millennial kingdom when he said in Micah chapter 5 in verse 2, but as for you Bethlehem Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. As finite people, eternality blows us away. We can't quite grasp it. When Kathy and I uh, got word that she was pregnant with our first child, with our son Matt, there was a physical time and place, even though I believe in in, uh, that life begins at conception. So he was conceived, which began his life in the womb, but he was birthed later into physical existence so we could see him. He had a beginning. All of us had a, had a beginning. And so when we think about uh, the world that we live in, everything in our world has a beginning and it has an end. And, and this is a little off subject, but don't you wish that you could keep your favorite clothes forever? If it was up to me, and some of you have seen me dress, but if it was up to me, I would just keep rotating my three favorite things. That's what I did when I was a kid. We didn't have a lot of clothes or things. I'd just rotate things Once you find something that you like, wouldn't you love to just keep wearing it forever and ever? But things wear out. Things get holes in them. Things get ratty. Things get dirty. Everything in our world has a beginning and an end. Jesus is eternal. How how can someone be eternal? Eternal. The only way that someone can be eternal is if that someone is God, right? And so that is is foundational in our understanding as we move into the gospel of John, that Jesus is eternal. The second foundational truth about Jesus is that he is God. As the eternal one, Jesus is God. Only God is eternal, only God is eternal. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. Jesus is God. And this is absolutely huge here. The eternal Lagos didn't become God. He has always been God. There was never a time when Jesus was not God. Now, just to be clear, to connect the dots, the word, the logos mentioned here in verse one is clearly referring to Jesus who became flesh. We see that in verse 14 and dwelt among us. And then Jesus is mentioned by name in verse 17. So he's referring to Jesus here. John is saying that God, who has always existed at one point in time, took the physical form of a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And really, even more than that, he he didn't just take the form of man, he became a man. And yet, as we'll see later in our study, he never ceased from being God. John is communicating here that Jesus Christ is eternal God. And and notice again in verse 1 that he says that the word was with God. And then in verse 2 says that Jesus was in the beginning with God. And so Jesus is God, but he is distinct from God, and we ask the question, how can that be? Well, to help us with this, we need to go back to the Greek preposition here. When John says that the word was with God, he uses the word pros, P-R-O-S. The word with here means to be in company with someone or to be face to face. So it speaks of communion and interaction and fellowship. John uses the word was, ain, again. So he's speaking of an eternal fellowship or a timeless relationship that the eternal word, the logos, has with God. And so this is consistent with our understanding of the Bible's teaching that God is a trinity. Three in one. One God made up of three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons who are the same in essence and power, but different in their responsibilities. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 48. Back in the Old Testament, um, the the Trinity wasn't a full mystery in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, while there isn't a lot of revelation about it, we do have allusions to the future teaching of the Trinity in the New Testament. So if you go back to Isaiah chapter 48 and look at verse 16, and this was somewhere around 700 to 750 years prior to uh, the birth of Christ. Verse 16 says, come near to me. And this would be Uh, prophetic pre-incarnate jesus speaking here come near to me listen to this from the first i have not spoken in secret from the time it took place i was there and now the lord god that's the father has sent me the son and his spirit This is probably, in my estimation, the best Old Testament verse that sets the stage for the New Testament teaching on the Trinity. In the Great Commission, and you know the Great Commission like the back of your hand, we all can quote the verse, Matthew chapter 28, actually two verses if you want to do that, verses 19 and 20. He said, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to baptize in the name of the Trinity. And so any baptismal service that you've been to that we've had at the church, we baptize those who have trusted in Christ, who want to make a public confession of their belief in Jesus. We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because that is what Jesus told his disciples to do when he was leaving the earth. Can you you just in your mind's eye imagine that Jesus had gone to the cross? He had died in the place of sinners. He had fulfilled his responsibility before God. Well, then he has this 40-day period of time where he was resurrected from the grave and and then he's in a glorified body, and he's on the earth, and he appears to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. But he's going to ascend up into heaven to do his work, because we know in John 14 that Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven, right? All of us who have trusted in Christ, Jesus is preparing this grand and glorious place in heaven for us to be eternally He's seated at the right hand of the Father in a glorified body. He says that, look, I am leaving. In other passages of Scripture, we find that he says that he's going to leave the helper. That's the paracletus, the the Holy Spirit of God. This is why we see in Acts chapter 2, this profound sermon by Peter where he preaches and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and they're baptized and they receive the Spirit of God. Because prior to Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was active in the hearts of those who were anointed in the Old Testament like kings and other prophets and things like that. But not every believer was, had the Spirit of God within them. And so everything changed at Acts chapter 2. And this is what we believe in the inauguration of the church. The church was inaugurated in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost where the Spirit of God was rained down and, and, and indwelt believers in Jesus Christ. So all of this was prophesied by Jesus before he ascends up into the heaven. Go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are uh, a number of other New Testament passages, one that I'm going to go through next week in great detail with you, uh, that speak to the deity of Jesus. If you're talking to a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness, uh, John 1.1 is as written in our English Bibles. That's the intent of John's gospel, that he lays out to mankind that Jesus is God. He is the eternal Lagos. But that's not the only verse in the New Testament that speaks to the deity of Jesus. Some other verses that you may like to write down, and I have recorded in my Bible in a list fashion when I am talking to other people about Jesus foundationally. But Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, blessing, the blessed hope. This is what we just sang about. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. G- Jesus is our great God and Savior who will appear in due time to take us, his people, out of this awful world that we live in, and we're going to go to this grand and glorious place that he's preparing for us even today. So Titus 2.13 is an excellent verse that speaks to the deity of Jesus. John 10 and verse 30, we'll eventually get there to this too. He says, I and the Father are one. In complete harmony, Jesus is distinct from the Father, but he is God, eternal God, the visible expression of God, the Logos, I and the Father are one. And then John 20 and verse 28, you know Thomas, right, (laughs) doubting Thomas, and Thomas answered and said unto Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then, and there are other verses uh, that we'll look at through our study, but Colossians 2 and verse 9, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There's so much to take in as it relates to what we know as the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus Christ. Two natures. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, never ceasing to be God. But as we'll see in our study, that he did, while he was on the earth, voluntarily lay aside some of the independent use of some of his divine attributes like omnipresence, for instance. Jesus was, while he was on the earth, in one place at one time, fully God, fully man. Could he have pushed aside the laying aside of his attributes? Of course. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, but he intentionally put aside the independent use of some of his attributes, the omnis, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence. He set those aside so that he can live a life as a man. But he lived it perfectly, right, to qualify himself to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. So we move into our study, and we're going to get into the heart of this next week, and we're going to go fairly uh, slow and methodically through this. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine the other day, and he said, I'm a big chunk guy. And I said, well, I'm chunky, but I'm a small chunk guy, so I'm going to probably go through in smaller chunks as we move our way through. Now, when we get to full stories about things, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in detail, and we'll, you know, if that's 15 verses or 16 verses, we'll do that. But here at the beginning of John chapter 1, we're going to take our time because this is the foundational teaching that leads to everything else we're going to look at in the Gospel of John. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, I had a great time studying this past week. I always do, but I really am looking forward to this. If you want to read uh, ahead, uh, just read chapter 1. I mean, primarily over the next couple of weeks, we're just going to be verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1, but then we'll start taking bigger chunks as we move along. But uh, I hope you're excited for the study. I mean, how can you not be? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, this is about our Savior. This is all about Jesus. And again, we can be a lot smarter at the end of this thing and know a lot of the stories and know a lot about the meaning of the stories of Jesus. And I think that's good. That's good. But this has to translate to something greater. This has to translate in our lives as a greater love and appreciation for Jesus and what he did. Can you even imagine what Jesus did? He's God, sinless, eternal. God comes to the earth and he hangs out with people like us. Can you even imagine? You know what it's like when you're hanging around people that are doing things they shouldn't do? You know, people at work that are doing all kinds of crazy, immoral things. Can you even imagine everyone that Jesus encountered was like that? doing things that were in opposition to the law of his father, and he lived a perfect life. He didn't didn't succumb to peer pressure. He lived a perfect life to qualify himself for the cross, and he died in our place. So my hope, my desire, my goal is to try to do my best (laughs) to make this come alive to us so that we can celebrate Jesus and not just be smarter, but to appreciate and love him more as our Savior and Lord. That is our goal through the study. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for John, who uh, Jesus said often, uh, the disciple that I loved. So we want to love him too, as he tells us more about Jesus, our Savior. And so we thank you this morning for our introduction to this gospel, We thank you for all that we've learned today and all that we hope to learn in the future. So we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.